I invite you to open your Bible this morning with me to the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11, we begin a new series, a new portion in the book, section in the book, uh, dealing with clean and unclean things. And so chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 are all devoted to this category of uh, clean and unclean. And so this morning we're going to look at that category briefly, but then more specifically at the categories of clean and unclean as it relates to food and touching dead things. And this is going to be it's going to seem a little arcane. It's going to seem like it's a long time ago and far removed from us. So I'm just going to ask you to uh, put your thinking caps on and, and give our attention to the Word. God has given this for our instruction and for our benefit. And so let's believe He knows what He's, uh, what he's doing in Leviticus chapter 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. And God spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying... These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. And so you'll have the land, the waters, uh, then birds, and then insects. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or rivers that does not have fins and scales, of the swarming creatures in the waters, and of the living things that are, uh, creatures that are in the waters, is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, you shall not, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these shall you detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hopo, and the bat. All winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet which, uh, with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. And by these you shall become unclean. And now verse 24 and following, we're going to be talking about what you may touch. So the first 23 verses, what you may eat, now what you may touch. And by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. Whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. The mole rat, the mouse, the great lizard of any kind. The gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. 
Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening. And anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it is an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose, it must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into any earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean and you shall break it. Any food in that should, could be eaten on which water comes shall be unclean. And all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean. And everything on which any part of their carcass falls shall be unclean, whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean for you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it is unclean to you. And if any animal which you eat uh, may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable, shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make for yourselves detestable you shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the, clean, the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word to us. God in heaven, Lord, you spoke these words to Moses and Aaron, and Lord, they had great significance, and, and they still do today, and I pray you'd give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, the hearts to receive uh, what you teach us now in your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Boys and girls, I'm going to share a little a factoid with you, and then I'm going to ask you a question, all right? A little, a little exam, a little quiz, I suppose, uh, after I share a few facts with you. Uh, there is a society uh, known as the Red Hat Society. It's made up of women uh, ages 55 and older. It started in 1998 by two women who just wanted to uh, age uh, playfully. And so they started this group in 1998. It's grown to an international organization, over 25,000 uh, members. And uh, their mission statement, I looked it up online, the mission statement is, uh, we encourage women to age playfully. That's it. So they wear red hats and, uh, and purple dresses often. So there's this, uh, the Red Hat Society has a distinguishing mark, um, something that identifies them as belonging to the Red Hat Society. And boys and girls have already given it away, but, but what is it that the ladies of the Red Hat Society wear to distinguish them to themselves as belonging to the Red Hat Society? It's a red hat, okay? Shocker. Uh, that's what they wear. It doesn't have to be a particular kind of hat. It seems the more flamboyant, the better, but it has to be red. And that distinguishes the ladies of the Red Hat Society. Why do I bring all that up? 
Well, because uh, in Leviticus 11 and following, in these, in these chapters dealing with clean and, unthe- clean and unclean, God is, is uh, giving Israel distinguishing characteristics. He's giving them things that will mark them out as different. Uh, mark them out as unique. Um, the most like, uh, for familiar uh, comparison we have today would be maybe the Amish community or the Mennonite community. And they wear, they wear particular clothes that when you look at them, you can immediately identify them as Amish or Mennonite. Uh, they belong to that community. And there's a whole bunch of rules, regulations, and, and a worldview, really, that goes along with, uh, with that community. Well, God, uh, here in these chapters, is giving His people... Uh, distinguishing characteristics and, and, and rules that will mark them out uh, as unique. They are, you see, a people that has been set apart to God. Among all the pagan nations of the world, Israel has this unique, distinct calling to be the people of God, to live for the glory of God, to look like their God. So as we see at the end of the chapter, you be holy, for I am holy. And God is very, very serious about this. God wants His children in the world to be identifiable as not belonging to the world, but belonging to to Him. He wants them to have distinguishing characteristics so that when you look at them, you notice the, the difference. And specifically, you see, then God has called His people to be holy, set apart to God, belonging to God. That's what you should see when you look at an Israelite uh, back in the days of Moses and Aaron. Well, what does belonging to God look like in actual lived out life? If you were to ask a person today who professes to be a Christian, uh, what does holiness look like? How do, how do you live a holy life? They would probably go to morality, which isn't a bad place to go. It's a necessary place to go. But they'd be a little vague about what holiness is supposed to look like. Well, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, God is very specific uh, about what holiness is supposed to look like. Harrison says this, For the ancient Hebrews, to be holy, distinctive, and priestly in character was not an abstract ideal, but an attainable reality that had practical dimensions in everyday living. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to first just uh, look at the idea of this category of clean and unclean, And then we'll look specifically at the commands, and then finally at the concerns. So if you keep your notes, the category, the commands, and the concern. Well, let's dig into the category itself, clean and unclean. We're beginning an extended section in the book on that that category. It's It's a bit murky to us. We don't think really in these terms. We don't call things necessary clean or unclean like they did. It is a specifically religious category. It has to do with uh, coming into the presence of God, being fit, uh, being able to come into the presence of God to worship Him and offer sacrifices. It's not really a sin issue. So the, as we go through the chapters, um, things like uh, childbirth and sin, uh, skin diseases and defiling molds can make you unclean. Touching a dead body can make you unclean. None of those are sins. It's not a sin to touch a dead body. It's not a sin to have a baby or to have a skin disease. But they are defiling things that need to be addressed before God's people can come back into the presence of a holy God. And so that's 
that's the category. And God lays out then what, what things defile and then what is the procedure to, to get rid of the defilement and to render a person clean, able to once again come into the presence of God. And this is usually waiting until evening, washing, and sometimes offering sacrifices. Well, let's dig into the commands themselves. As I said, the first half of the chapter is taking up with what you must not eat, second half, what you must not touch. The uh, categories are broken in in, uh, the four groups of land animals, and then... Uh, all that are in the waters, verses 9 through 12, birds, uh, 13 through 19, and insects, 20 through 24. And for just to, maybe for ease of understanding, I'll just quickly go through what are clean and unclean in each of these categories. Land animals, um, clean is uh, all land animals that chew the cud and have a divided hoof. So cattle, deer, goats, sheep are all clean. You may eat them. Unclean, then animals that do not chew the cud or do not have a split hoof. And they have to have, it has to be both, right? To be clean, it's got to be chew the cud and divided hoof. And so we saw in the reading that things that maybe chew the cud but don't have a divided hoof, they're not clean. So pigs, dogs, cats, horses, donkeys, uh, those things are not to be eaten. Seafood has to have fish, uh, has to have uh, fins and scales. If it doesn't have fins and scales, uh, you can't eat it. So all your shellfish, eels, dolphins, if it doesn't have fins and scales, it's unclean. Birds. Uh, clean are the birds that eat grain. So chickens, doves, ducks, things like that. Unclean, uh, birds of prey or scavengers. So if it's eating other things, living or dead, in order to live, right, then you can't eat it. So eagles, falcons, uh, owls, hawks of all kinds, vultures, um, all those things are unclean. You can't eat them. Bats, right? They're eating insects. And then insects themselves. The clean insects are locusts, grasshoppers, and crickets. And uh, we're not really used to eating uh, insects back in the wilderness, in the desert. That would be a very common part of their diet. Um, John the Baptist, remember, lived on locusts and wild honey. Uh, but uncle- So those are clean, and just about everything else is unclean. You can eat crickets, grasshoppers, and locusts, and nothing else. So those are the those are the things that uh, you can and cannot eat. Those are the kosher laws concerning what must be eaten. Well, what about what must not be touched? <clears throat> the f- verses 24 through 28, um, touching the, deals with the, the rules for touching an unclean carcass. So if a pig dies and you touch that unclean animal, then there are specific rules. Um, that verses 39 through 40 talks about touching the car- carcass of a clean animal. But the emphasis in this section is on things that swarm on the ground. And so uh, verse 29, these are unclean to you among the swarming things. So the, the mole rat and the mouse, the lizard, the gecko, uh, uh, the sand lizards, um, all these things are the things that crawl on the ground, swarm on the ground. They're unclean and they are particularly de- defiling so that if a, a gecko dies and touches an article of clothing, it's unclean. If it falls into a, one of your cooking pots, you have to break the cooking pot because um, it's been defiled. You can't cook in it any longer. Uh, God does give an allowance, interestingly, if it falls into a pot containing drinking water, you can remove it from the drinking water, and and the water isn't defiled. Water is a very precious commodity, of course. Uh, But whoever removed it, they are unclean until the evening, until they wash. So um, 
these laws are spoken very strongly. Uh, God says in, in verse 41, every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat. They are detestable. So those are the rules. They're not that hard to understand. They seem maybe complicated to us, but if you lived in that community, you'd very quickly, you'd know what the rules are. What you can eat, what you can't eat, what you may touch, what, what would defile you if you did touch it. The rules are not that difficult to understand. The reasons are much more difficult. So, third point, the concern. Uh, what actually are the governing principles that would make sense of these rules? Why this and not that? Why are pigs and oysters and uh, such things forbidden, but goats and crickets are allowed? And people have wrestled with this, trying to make sense of these, these laws. Um, you can read the commentators. Uh, some suggest that these, are meant, these rules are meant for hygienic and diet, dietary purposes. Sort of an early guide to healthy living. In fact, there's an author who wrote um, The Maker's Diet. Subtitle is The 40-Day Health Experience That Will Change Your Life Forever. That's pretty uh, compelling. <clears throat> change your life forever. And he argues that this is, uh, this is, this is God's diet plan. That, that uh, the Israelites were the most healthy people in the world because they followed God's diet. And if you would follow God's diet, uh, God cares about your health. He cares about what you eat. What you eat affects you. And uh, if you follow the maker's diet, <clears throat> your life will be a change forever. The problem with that argument is that all the dietary laws fall away when Jesus comes. So if God was that dearly concerned about your health in the Old Testament, he clearly is not that concerned about it in the New Testament. Uh, that cannot be, even though there, there are certainly some dietary and hygienic um, aspects, it's not even close to the primary purpose uh, because, again, they all fall away in the New Testament. The criterion, rather, are not practical but theological. God is, 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 is doing some, uh, some teaching here, or these things can best be understood in, in a theological framework. So if you just think about what's happening, uh, God has brought Israel out of Egypt and He has come to dwell with them. This is sort of Eden recreated, though not in its original form. But God and, and uh, His people are once again together in a holy place. And if you remember, um, what was the, the command that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden? It was a command about what they could eat. What they couldn't eat specifically. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have a similar now as God once again comes to dwell with his people. It is, is recreating Eden. He begins again with laws, rules concerning what they can eat. And this, uh, there's, a, there's a very practical purpose for this. We eat every day. Every day we have to make the decision of uh, obedience or disobedience. Israel, every day, as they eat, will be reminded uh, of the sovereign lordship of, of their God, their covenant relationship with God, and, uh, and the test, are they willing to submit to it? There's other, there are other uh, theological things that are, that are being pointed to here. One being the idea that death is profoundly unclean. It's a defiling reality in the world. 
And so animals that kill to eat or scavenge among dead things, those animals must not be eaten. They're forbidden. Uh, God is, is teaching his, his people the value of, of life, um, and blood and life are synonymous. And so the Israelite has to be careful to respect life in, in, in what they eat. Um, why would swarming things that swarm in the ground be forbidden? Well, I think that re- that's just related to the curse that God placed on the ground, and specifically the, the serpent. If you remember back in Genesis 3, God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. <clears throat> and so God makes detestable things that resemble the serpent or things that are swarming on the ground, which has been cursed. But notice, and this is really important, notice we're not really told by God the reasons. You don't have a section here that, that gives the rationale. Why this and why not that? And that's on purpose. It's not, it's not an oversight on God's part. You see, God is, like He did in the Garden of Eden, His, his intent is to test the obedience and the faith of Israel. Uh, we get frustrated by lack of reasons, don't we? If, if someone tells us to do something, we would like a rationale. Boys and girls, it's frustrating, isn't it, when your mom and dad tells you to do something and you say, why? And they say, because I told you to do it? <clears throat> it's just not complete. It's not something that you can, you know, it doesn't... Okay, it's true, but why did you tell me to do it? We want reasons. We all do. We like God to explain Himself. And when God does things in our life that are impenetrable, we just cannot make any sense of it, those things become the really difficult things. Well, that's on purpose. God says the secret things belong to God, the revealed things belong to uh, us, and there are things He has not revealed to us. Why do certain tragedies happen? Why, why does God call us to, to obedience in, in maybe a specific area? And it, it doesn't really make sense to us. Well, that's on purpose. The question, you see, that God puts before us in all those impenetrable things is, well, do we trust ourselves and our reasoning? Are we going to lean on our understanding or will we acknowledge God in all of our ways? That's the issue. Does it have to make sense in order for us to obey. Does it have to be something that we've, uh, we've agreed to and, 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 that, and that is, has met our standard of, of an acceptable requirement that God's given to us? Or are we going to let God be God? That's one functioning of these laws. The only rationale that we have is given in verses 44 through 45. And it's, it's very strong. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls, that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. That's the rationale. God is holy. God is your God. God has called you out of the land of Egypt to be his own possession, and he intends his people to look like him. He intends to make them holy. Israel was, has this calling to be the one nation in a world full of pagan nations. 
one nation specifically devoted to God, called to the worship of the true God. As God, remember, says in chapter 10, after he had struck Nathan and uh, Abihu, Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Well, that was true for Aaron and the priests. It's also true for Israel as a nation. And the kosher laws are one way of Israel then um, showing that they're a unique people that belong to God. You, you think about Daniel. Boys and girls, you remember the story of Daniel brought into captivity in Babylon, and, and the king made Daniel and his friends. He, he, he put before them the food of Babylon and commanded them to eat it. And Daniel said, can't do it. I'm an Israelite. I belong to God. And here in the, in the world capital of paganism and, and world power of that day, Daniel stands as a man in, the, in this sea of unbelief. Daniel stands as a man who points to the reality of a living God by what he will not eat. He's going to take a stand. And he does. And he honors God in that. And friends, that is precisely our calling today. When you come to the page of the New Testament, we just read it this morning in Romans chapter 1, uh, the greeting. To those in Rome, called to be what? Saints. Called to be saints. It's the, it's the word for holiness. Paul, when he addresses the churches, he'll say to the saints in Rome, the saints in Ephesus, the saints in Corinth. That's our identity. That's, that's God's purpose. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, He predestined us before the foundation of the world. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. If you ask, what is God's intent in my life? What is God doing in my life? What's His purpose? What's the grand goal? This is it. That you be a holy people consecrated to God, dedicated to God. A people that is, that is uh, remarkable for this one thing that, that you live for, the glory of God, the purposes of God. And so Peter will take uh, this phrase from Leviticus 11 and apply it directly to the New Testament church. As obedient children... 1 verse 14, do not be conformed by the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. One of the great um, ways that the, the, the church stumbles is our desire, our we like to look like the world. We like to be approved by the world. We don't want to stand out and be different to be weird. Well, that's the calling of a Christian. It's, it's, it's to look different. We're supposed to be consciously aware that we don't belong to this culture. It's not, it's not, our, it's not our home. We don't, we don't belong. We're, we're aliens. We're, we're strangers. This isn't our native environment. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We march to a different drummer. We, we, we live for different reasons and by different principles. And so, and so Paul will say in Philippians uh, chapter 2.15, we're supposed to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. We're supposed to shine like stars in the midst of a crooked 
and twisted generation. Well, the question is, what makes a Christian shine like a star? What is it that about a Christian that, that should be noteworthy so that the world stands up and takes notice that there's something weird about that person, something different about that person? It's fascinating, in, in Philippians 2, verse 14, Paul uh, points out that the, the thing that makes you shine like a star in this world is um, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, stop complaining, stop arguing, be thankful in all things, and you will shine like a star in this twisted and, and crooked uh, generation. Live like you have a heavenly Father who loves you and is caring for you, even when life is hard. I um, just sent out this week on the pastor's post, and my recommendation is a, a story about this, this lady named, uh, who's called herself now Nightbirdie. Her original name is Jane something, I can't remember her last name. Um, it's Polish, and I'm not good at Polish names anyhow. But the, um, she's a songwriter. She's 30, maybe young 30s, um, has cancer, Christian. Um, and she was on um, America's Got Talent. I just encourage you to read it if you haven't checked it out. And there's a glow about this, this woman. She's got a 2% chance of surviving this uh, cancer. It's in her spine. It's in her liver, lungs. And there's a noticeable glow about her. Um, a, a, a joy, even though she's been through incredible pain. And, and as I was watching them, I'm just thinking... That's, that's what our lives, we should, we should want our lives to be defined by that. That, that. that there's a glow and there's gratitude and there's thankfulness, even in really, really hard things. Now the question is, how do you get that? And the answer is, you have to have your vision full of eternal things. You, you've got to have your mind set on the big picture. You've got to have a perspective that is eternal or you can't possibly live in this world in the midst of hard things and be, be thankful. So, this, uh, these kosher laws, but there's a wonderful lesson here. You see, something profound happened when Jesus entered the world and removed kosher laws. It's not just a little sub-note, uh, you know, we're done with this now. When Jesus entered the world, he, he removes these laws of Leviticus chapter 11 that really mattered when God gave them. He meant them, intended them. He was very serious about them. So why don't we still observe them? And the answer is that those were signs that belonged to a different age, a different epoch, a different era. The world that was then defined by the curse, defined by bondage, defined by death and darkness and shadows. But the kingdom of heaven has invaded this world when Jesus was born. And because the king had come, the kingdom has come. And so everything sad begins to become untrue, as C.S. Lewis says. The curse is being turned back. That's the point of Jesus' miracles. He's not just trying to get people's attention. He's not just trying to do good things and, and help people live a better life. The miracles of healing are about the curse is being turned back. Life is breaking in. Death is being overcome. That's what's happening. 
And we live in that age when the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the light has pierced the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and never will. And that, that's why the kosher laws are gone because the kingdom has come and that's why we're free to enjoy all of God's good creation because it belongs to us in Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 4.4 Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul will say, uh, everything is yours. Right? Paul, Cephas, Paulus, the world... It's all yours in Jesus Christ. Because we belong now to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has made us clean. Forever clean. Able to dwell in the presence of God. Where our sins have been washed away, robed in righteousness, so that now we have free access all the time into the, in, into the most holy place. It's a new era. It's a new age. So what will people who get that look like? Well, there are some things in the New Testament marked out. It, they'll look like, it, it, it'll look like love when people get this. So John, Jesus says in John 13, 30, 34, A new commandment I give you, love one another, even as I've loved you. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And that's not a sappy, just sort of sentimental affection of course that, that's a genuine concern for each other a sacrificial caring for each other a willingness to bear with each other and to forgive each other to embrace each other actual love that we care about people particularly the people of God but that love spills out into our relationships in the world. We're not grumbling and complaining and arguing. We're loving each other. We're loving people. It's the distinguishing characteristic of God's people. By this the world will know. Unity is another one. Jesus prays in John 17, Lord, uh, make them one as we are one so that the world will know that you sent me. How is the world supposed to know that we're living in a new era if we act as though we're all still in the old era? If we act as though nothing significant has happened in Jesus Christ who came to break down the barriers between people and to lead us as a church in unity. But the ultimate uh, distinguishing characteristic is, is Jesus himself. It's wonderful that Jesus, you see, removed the old dietary laws and put in place a new one, just one. You know what it is? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. You see, Christians aren't just people that are nice, get along. Christians are people who feed on Jesus Christ who feed on all that he is in his person, who feed on all that he has done in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, who feed on all that he's promised. And so Christians are people who take all that truth into the reality of their life, into the reality of their relationships, into the reality of their heart, where they desire things and choose things. Christians are people who come and they, they come together on Sundays to open the word and, and be fed 
the truth of God. And they, get, they, they go home and, and during the week they open the Bible to be fed the truth of God. And that truth focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Christians have a new diet. We feed on Jesus. And Christians have a unique clothing. We put on Jesus. You can find this throughout the New Testament. Let me just give you one example. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're to be people who, as we put on all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done and all that Jesus has promised, as we, as we take it to ourselves, it's changing what we desire. It's changing what we long for and what we hunger for. And it's completely unique and different from anything in the world. We're not living for money. We're not living for self and for success and, and for pleasure. We're living for glory. We're living to know Jesus. I want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. I want to live like, like a child of my heavenly father. I want to live in this world as though the new heaven and the new earth is actually my inheritance, is truly my home. And Jesus is really my savior and God is truly my God. That will change your life. That will mark you as a child of God. May God grant it. Amen. God in heaven, you've called us to be a holy people. You've called us to be saints. And I thank you, Lord, that the, the power that brought our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that power has been set loose in our life so that, Lord, we might be sanctified and made holy. Thank you, Lord, so much that you've called us to be your people, your unique, distinct people, not because of anything in us, but sheer sovereign grace that called us out of the darkness and out of death and into light and life. But, oh God, I pray then that that, that reality, that glorious reality, would penetrate the way we do our life and so that our thoughts and our words, our attitudes and actions are being molded by the reality of the gospel and by the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ so that our lives are, are being distinguished by love and by unity, by gratitude, by kindness, and by Christ. And we give him all the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing with a song of consecration as we offer up all that we are in all of our life to our Lord Jesus, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. Let's stand and sing.